Well, if, if you have a Bible with you this evening, can I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. We're beginning this evening our new series in the book of Exodus, and we trust and pray that as we read through and study this book within God's Word, that we will be blessed in our doing so. Exodus chapter 1. This is the word of God. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Natalie, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the, the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. Amen. We thank God for his word to us this evening. Father, we need your help as we come to your word. We pray that your word and your spirit will be at work and that our hearts would be open 
our hearts would be soft, they would be ready to hear your word, and that we would be changed by it. Lord, as we learn more about who you are, as we are reminded of your character, as we see your saving grace at work, might it bring great joy to our hearts, and might we leave praising and rejoicing that we have a God who saves, we have a God who is in control, we worship the one true king. Help us with this now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you kind of want maybe a title for this evening, I think it's something like this. A story continued, a story continued as God's purposes prevail. A story continued as God's purposes prevail. Um, You know what it's like, don't you? You've you've got watching this really good series and you you get to the end of it, you've been gripped by it and you get to the very very last episode and... um, well, it just doesn't satisfy, does it? <laughs> you know, you, you've been watching your way through. You've got so many questions. You're hopeful that this last episode is going to come along and tie up all the loose ends. It's going to give you all the details that you were looking for. And you get to the end, you think, ah, oh, there's so many questions that I still want to be answered. And you know that the script writer is really leaving you hanging so that in a few months' time, you will come back to season two. Perhaps you've been watching something recently Perhaps you're in that kind of stage of, of waiting, trying to think in your head, I wonder what happens. I wonder how this story continues on. I want, what about that thread? How, how does that get tied up? One of the things that I really love about um, Rich Hill uh, Church here is the kind of the, the expositional preaching. You kind of come each week and you kind of know that we're going to be picking up where we left off last week. And so you get a, a real sense of each of the books of the Bible as we work our way through. You kind of feel like you get to know the author, um, the, 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 the person who pens it. You kind of understand how they write. You, you figure out how to read them in such a way that, oh yeah, that's when they're really making a big point. They're really trying to show us something really clear. And we kind of almost get more and more familiar with them, don't we? And the, the big story, well, we, we get to see the, the big story of the book in a way that just gives us a different lens than if we only jump in here, there, and everywhere. It's really helpful to kind of read it as a whole. Over the, the, the last few months, in the evening services, we've been working our way through Philippians. If you're here last week, you'll know that we got to the end of Philippians. But if you were coming before that, you will know that we did a huge big chunk of the book of Genesis. We started in Genesis 12, and we worked our through, way through till the very end of the book of Genesis. And we were confronted with the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But more than being confronted with the characters of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we were confronted again and again and again with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But if you remember back, if you remember back, although we got to the end of the book of Genesis, we got to the end of chapter 50, we finished up with lots of questions that were unanswered. There were so many threads that were not all tied together. There was promises that were made that we hadn't seen come to full fruition. And so we got to the end of the Genesis and we were thinking, well, what comes next? What comes next? Well, here is what comes next. We get to the book of Exodus. We get to the book of Exodus. Um, Genesis 50, kind of finished up with, thought a lot about the story of Joseph. Joseph had found himself in Egypt, 
and so had the rest of his family. There had been this famine, and yet Joseph had found himself sold into slavery into Egypt. Then in the marvelous way that God works, God had raised him up to be second in command, and he was able to actually save all of his family, save God's people as they came and took refuge in Egypt. And yet, it was a temporary measure. It was a temporary measure. In the last few verses of the book of Genesis, Joseph reminds his brothers of what will happen. He says, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. You see, Joseph knew that Egypt was a temporary measure. God had made promises and he was going to keep them about God's people returning to the land of Canaan. Now remember how they ended up leaving Canaan to come to Egypt in the first place. Remember, Joseph was a slave, okay? But then God moved in such a way to raise him up, okay, that he was able to be a a savior figure, saving God's people. And remember Genesis 50, 20, a really key verse in that last chapter, really famous verse when Joseph speaks to his brothers. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Genesis 50, 20, what do we see? God was at work even in the most painful of circumstances. Even in the most painful of circumstances. And so I want you to have Genesis 50, 20 kind of lingering. Have that lingering in your mind as we move into the story of Exodus. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God was at work even in the most painful of circumstances. And for God's people who had been enjoying the, really the, the fat of the land of Egypt, those years of prosperity were coming to an end. And they're about to enter into this period of deep, deep pain. So let's pick up where we left off at the end of Genesis. Uh, and the book, of, the book of Exodus is very much a continuation of that story. Exodus is really the, the sequel to Genesis. It's the season two to the season one that we've already looked at in the story of Genesis. And we've very much enjoyed that. And we've been left lingering, wondering what comes next. Well, tonight we're picking that up. So look at how it starts. Uh, the author of, of Exodus wants us to know that this is a story continued. It's not just my idea that this is a story continued. It really is a story continued. And the, the, the author wants us to see that. Look at those first six verses. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, with each his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Natalie, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. You see, whenever you read these verses, they, they really don't make much sense unless you know the story of Genesis. If you were to read these and you didn't know the story of Genesis, these verses really would not make much sense. For a start, who is Israel? It's a question, isn't it? Who is Israel? 
Well, let's just assume that you already know him. And you, you know that Israel has actually uh, another name for it, Jacob, and that his name had been changed back in Genesis. And why was Joseph already done in Egypt? Well, it's, it's assumed that you already know that part of the story. And so the writer of Exodus doesn't tell us, okay? Because he thinks you already know that in Genesis. You know that he was sold into slavery. You know that he, he, he was uh, raised up uh, to be second in command there. You know that part of the story. It assumes you know it because you've read Genesis. But even some of the, some of the details, like, um, for example, it says, um, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Some of you might have ears to hear and think, I have heard that pretty much exact phrase before. Where? Back in Genesis. Genesis is a direct echo of what we were told back in Genesis chapter 46. You see, the writer of Exodus wants us to know that this is very much a story continued. In fact, as you read verse 7, it's almost impossible not to hear echoes of, of Genesis again. Listen uh, to, to the wording of, of verse 7. Now, this time it echoes further back than where we started in chapter 12, but quite possibly uh, a verse that you already know. Verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. I wonder, did you hear any echoes of, of Genesis? What was it that God had commanded his people back in the Garden of Eden? God said to them, this is in Genesis 1, 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And isn't that exactly what God's people are now doing? They're being fruitful, they're multiplying, and they are filling the earth. But think too of the, the promises that were given to Abraham about being a father of a great nation whose descendants would be like the stars in the sky. See that back in Genesis 15. And what is God doing? Well, God is keeping his promises, isn't he? God is keeping his promises. And it really is God who is at work making this happen. Sometimes, sometimes it's really helpful to, to flick further on in the Bible and to hear how the Bible talks about something that's happened in the past. And Psalm 105, uh, verse 24, does this very thing. Listen to, um, listen to what it says uh, about what took uh, place at this um, point in history. It says, And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. See, it was God's doing. God was the one who was at work so that his promises were really being kept and so that his people were able to do the very thing that God had commanded them to do. Exodus is a story continued. But in Exodus 1, we also see that circumstances have changed. Circumstances have changed. Already we read of how Joseph and all his brothers have uh, died along with that generation. You see that in verse 6. And that's, that's significant. The fact that all that generation have, have now died, that's, that's significant. Because often with a new generation coming up, there can be a real change. The things that were taken for granted with the previous generation, well, they're no longer set. This new generation is coming up, and so things are changing. But this circumstance change is really highlighted in verse 8. Look with me. And there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, if you know the, the story of Genesis, you will know that Joseph is no small figure in the history of Egypt. In fact, he was the one who interpreted Pharaoh's dreams 
which allowed for them to be able to make provision for the seven years of plenty and then the, 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 the seven years of famine. And in fact, it was under Joseph's care that Egypt really flourished. And the previous generation had shown great respect to Joseph and his family, the Israelites, for that very reason. Think of what happened whenever uh, Joseph's father and brothers came to Egypt. How were they treated? Well, they were given the very best of the land in all of Egypt. We read that in Genesis 45. Oh, remember what happened when Joseph had asked Pharaoh for permission to go and to bury his father in the land of Canaan. Not only was he allowed to go, but he was told to go with all of the elders of the land of Egypt. And he was, he was sent with chariots and with horsemen. There was great respect shown to, to Joseph and his family. But now there's a new king. Now there's a new king a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, was it that they had never heard of Joseph? I mean, it's possible, but it seems most unlikely. What I think it's really saying here is he did not know him in the sense that Joseph really meant nothing to him. Joseph meant nothing to him. And so there was going to be no kindness or, or appreciation shown towards his descendants. There would be no favor shown towards the Israelites from this new king. This was a new generation. This was a new era. And in fact, it wasn't just that they would get no special treatment. This new king was actually going to set himself against this people of God. Verse 9. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses, a new king has arisen in Egypt. And this king of Egypt is almost like, he's almost like the anti-God figure. The anti-God figure. He's not seeking to, to lead the people in the ways of God. No, he is completely opposed to God and to what God has said. Remember what we have already talked about God saying back in, in, in the garden, Genesis chapter one. Be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth and subdue it. And Pharaoh is opposed to the, the Israelites doing that very thing. He doesn't want them to multiply. He is opposed to God's ways. But he also tries to take on this God-like position. And so he takes the people of Israel and he, he makes them into slaves, setting taskmasters over them and afflicting them with heavy burdens. They are set to work building great store cities, which no doubt, if you were driving through Egypt, would look pretty impressive, wouldn't they? You'd look at these great big storehouses and you'd think, wow, this is some place. And if Egypt looks like a pretty impressive kind of place, well, then you're going to think, wow, the king of Egypt, he must be something special. This new king over Egypt, he would then get the glory, wouldn't he? This new king is an anti-God figure. He is opposed to God. And there's another clue that this is the case. Look with me at verse 10. Listen to this language. He says, come, let us 
deal shrewdly with them. Come, let us. I wonder, can you think back? Again, this was pre where we picked up in Genesis. But if you've been reading through Genesis, you, you might recognize that. Come, let us. This is the, the, the very language that is used back in Genesis 11. When the people then set themselves in opposition to God. God had said that to fill the earth and subdue it. And the people, rather than going out and filling the earth and subduing it, as God had commanded them, thought that they would do the opposite. They thought they would huddle together, build a great big city with a mighty big tower. And who would get the glory? They would. People would look at this great big tower and think that they were great. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Doesn't that sound very familiar? Doesn't that sound very familiar? Very similar to the kind of thing that this new king in Egypt is is seeking to do. This king who is opposed to God and his ways. And as a result, he is opposed to God's people. And so the Israelites are, are thrust back into a period of of deep, deep pain. An evil man is ruling and it causes great pain for God's people. And I wonder if amidst the pain, I wonder if amidst the pain, were they able to remember back to what Joseph had said in Genesis 50? That 50-20 principle. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Because that 50-20 principle is one that we really need to hold on tightly to. A friend of mine talks about um, rapid deployment theology, rapid deployment theology, things that we need to know about God and about how God works when everything seems to go from our perspective completely pear-shaped, rapid deployment theology. And that 50-20 principle is surely one of those Verses that we need to keep close and, and hold on tightly to so that when it comes to it, we can rapidly deploy it. God really is working. He really is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, even, even at the moments when that seems like it's almost impossible to be true. The Israelites surely needed to look back at how God had worked before in order for them to be able to trust that God would still work in these circumstances that they find themselves in now. And it's at moments like this, it's at moments like this when we see just how important it is that one generation seeks to pass on the faith to the next generation. That's really important, isn't it? We were talking about that earlier. One generation seeking to pass on their faith to the next generation to point to God's faithfulness in your life, to testify how you've seen these truths played out in your life so that the next generation, whenever they face the circumstances that they come into and they think, well, what do I do now? What do I believe now? They think, well, I know what to believe now. I've I've, I've talked to, to people in my church who've told me their story and they've pointed to how God was faithful in their lives and God was at work even amidst all of those really difficult and painful circumstances. And so they already have this rapid deployment theology that they know what to do with it. 
They can hold on to it despite the pain and the hardship that might come. It's a circumstance change for the Israelites, isn't it? No longer were they living in privilege, but now they find themselves living as slaves. And yet, and yet, even in the midst of what must surely have felt like a nightmare, God was at work. Listen to verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Now, isn't that funny? Isn't it funny? The very opposite of what this new king thought would happen, when God's people were suffering, they were actually growing better at doing the very thing that God had called them to do. And isn't that a principle that we see again and again throughout the whole Bible, throughout all of history? Maybe as you look throughout your own life up until this point, you can see that actually it's three moments of suffering that God's people often really grow. Through moments of suffering that often God's people really grow. It's often through moments of suffering that we recognize that the way that we ordered our lives isn't right and we have to kind of reorder them. It's often through moments of suffering that we really grow much, much closer to God. I wonder, is that something that you've seen in your own life? Certainly something we talked about recently as we worked our way through James. Um, was, that, was that last summer we worked our way through the book of James? What did James say? Count to all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials are the way that God grows his people. Some of you tonight are... You're in situations not maybe that dissimilar to that of the Israelites. You are in a period of intense trial. Well, you need to know that it doesn't mean that God is not there, and it doesn't mean that God is not working. No, in fact, the scripture would teach us that that's actually the opposite, isn't it? Often it's through these trials that God really does grow us to be more sanctified, to be more like Christ Jesus. Often it's through those hard pruning moments that the good fruit of the Spirit really does then grow. Look at the second part of uh, verse 12. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. What we're given here is a picture of backbreaking work. It's a bleak and dark period in the lives of God's people. Just look at those kind of words that are used to describe how awful it is. Ruthlessly, bitter, hard service. This was not just a hard day's graft. This was awful. And it's at this point that then we get this little, little chink of light. But what we see here is a, well, it's really a garden reversal. A garden reversal. Listen to what happens. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named uh, Shifra, 
and the other pua. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them in the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. What happened back in Genesis? What happened back in the garden? Well, Satan came along in the form of a a serpent and tried to make Eve doubt God's good word so that she would turn against his good word uh, and rather than letting his good word rule over her, she would listen to that of the, the serpent. And what does Eve do? Well, she listened to the words of the serpent rather than listen to God. In a sense, she allowed the serpent to take the place of God in his rule over her, listening to his words rather than God's words. What happens here? Here we have a a serpent-like king comes along, and again, he, he picks on the ladies, and he seeks to lead them to do the very opposite of what God had called them to do. Here are these midwives whose job it was to help deliver the little babies and to keep them alive. He tries to lead them to do the complete opposite, doesn't he? Here are those midwives who are uh, seeking to preserve life and helping with the delivery of the babies. And in doing that, they're actually working out some of the application of the being fruitful and multiplying, the filling the earth and subduing it. I'm seeking to see that command back in Genesis fulfilled. And Satan comes along and Satan tries to lead them to do the very opposite, to restrict the fruitfulness and the multiplying and the filling of the earth. But what we see here is unlike Eve back in the garden, these midwives bravely and courageously stand against the orders given by this serpent-like king. For although they no doubt feared this king, I mean, this king could have had their jobs, (laughs) he could have had their lives. He was a, a king to be feared. Although they no doubt would have feared this king, they had a much, much, much greater fear. And their greater fear was of the true king, of God himself. Listen to verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Here what we have is a a little moment of garden reversal, isn't it? Rather than listening to the serpent-like king, these ladies refuse to listen to this king, for their allegiance is to the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the creator God of the book of Genesis. This is whom their allegiance is to. And although they've not yet been given the commandments, we see that they already know God's commands. They know that there is, well, it's it's not their place to take someone's life. That is God's rule. The law of God is already written on their hearts. And so their conscience tells them that it is wrong for them to murder these children. And so whenever they're, they're faced with opposing commands, Where do they stand? Well, they stand with the king of kings. If you have to stand with one king, make sure you stand with the king of kings. And we too find ourselves with opposing commands, don't we? We find ourselves faced with opposing commands. 
It might be in the workplace or the home, or it might be within our friendship circles. It might be through social media. It might be through government legislation, or it might be through family pressure. And it's the pressure to do something that we know is wrong, opposing Christ and his commands. And so what are we to do whenever we, we come in, into a situation like that where we're facing this opposition? What are we to do? Well, we're to look at these midwives as a wonderful example, aren't we? Their fear of God is the thing that motivates them. And their fear of God keeps them from sinful action. Their fear of God keeps them from sinful action. Some of you are going to have to make very similar decisions. Perhaps it'll be a situation very similar to that of the the midwives here, where the the state puts pressure on you to be involved in, in the murder of unborn children, either as staff working in the NHS or perhaps as a, as a parent. Or perhaps there's pressure to, to terminate a pregnancy when the other parent doesn't want the child. And these midwives, they model to us what it is to obey God, the King of Kings, rather than man. But this plays out much more broadly than just talking about the life of a baby, doesn't it? Whenever you're put under pressure to to lie about something that you witnessed, when there's pressure to fiddle the numbers on the books, when there's pressure to call someone by a pronoun that does not match their sex, we, we feel pressure from all sorts of different areas, don't we? And despite the pressure of man, when the two calls are opposed to each other, we're supposed to show our allegiance to the King of Kings. Now, the midwives didn't really know what the outcome was going to be. We read their story and we see that it works out well for the midwives, but it may not have worked out well for the midwives. They did not know how this king, how Pharaoh was going to respond. For all they know, they may well have lost their lives. And yet, what do they do? They still act rightly. And as God's people, we are to act rightly, even though we do not know what the shortcoming outcome will be here on earth. Fracting rightly is actually one of the, the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Goodness. Goodness. Goodness, good living, acting rightly. Being obedient to how, calls, how God calls us to live. So look at what happens, verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? Let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. What we see here is a, well, a wonderful gift from God. Now, much is, much is made over whether these midwives were right to lie. Maybe you've found yourselves debating that story before. But for one thing, the text doesn't actually tell us that they lied, okay? 
It could be that the Hebrew woman at this time really did give birth quicker. Okay, that, that's a possibility. But what we know for sure is this. They definitely didn't do what this king wanted them to do. They definitely did not murder the boys. Nor did they divulge the full truth whenever they were asked about what was taking place. But certainly, what we're sure about is that as we read this passage, the midwives and their actions are written about with a positive um, lens. As you read through, you see this, they're spoken of in a positive way. And that the fear of God on the midwife's part actually leads to blessing from God. Now, one of the little quirky notes of this passage is, the midwives here, their names are recorded. Do you know the name of the Pharaoh, this new king of Egypt? No, we're not told his name. He was the one with all of the power, or, or so it seemed at the time, and yet we don't even know who he was. But we know these two midwives, their names are recorded, and we know them. Doesn't that tell us something? That it's better to be known by God and have our name in God's Lamb's Book of Life than to have our names known by, well, the people of the day. God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and they grew very strong. And then God gave these midwives families. God gave them children and children in the Bible are only ever seen as a blessing from God. See, the fear of God really did lead to a blessing in their lives, a life where more and more they were able to live in the way that God called them to live. And as we live in the way that God calls us to live as his people, it's no surprise that we see God's kingdom growing, that it affects the, the kingdom. You see, these midwives were a gift from God. They were godly women who would stand up against Satan's devices, boldly standing in face of danger. And look at the impact that it had on the nation. You kind of wonder when God's people would be led out at the end of the story, out of Egypt, I've given a little spoiler away, okay? How much smaller that group would have been if these midwives had listened to the Egyptian king? If rather than seeking to preserve life, they had set out to kill as many baby boys as they possibly could. How different this group may have looked. But these midwives did not do such a thing, for they feared the one true king. Often, often we don't know the impact that salt has. The impact that salt has. How God's people seeking to live in godly ways prevents the world from being as worldly as it would otherwise be. And so we should give thanks, shouldn't we, for the gift of godly women and godly men who live out godly lives as they seek to be salt in the world. And for those of us who are Christians, isn't that what we should seek to be? Wherever God has placed us, shouldn't we seek to be salt, living godly lives? Exodus 1 gives us lots of examples of, of godly women 
how God uses them and the impact that they can have. And so I think it's particularly one of those passages that for the ladies, for the girls, here is godly examples in the workplace and in the home of ladies who live in a way that seeks to honor God as their king in the ordinary everyday of life, in work or at home. And what a gift they were. What a gift they were in Egypt. So as we get to the the end of this first chapter of Exodus, already the midwives are a little picture, a little picture of what's to come. Already we see that this new king is not really the one who's going to win. He's not really the one who's actually in control. And despite his human schemes and actions, it is the plans and purposes of God that are fulfilled. Already that the midwives here are, are little saviors, aren't they? Who are rescuing God's people. A little, a little foretaste of what's going to come in the book of Exodus, yes, but even more a little foreshadowing of what's to come in the person of Christ Jesus. The one who would rescue all his people from the grip of Satan and save them from their sin through his death on the cross and resurrection to life again. What a gift we have in Christ Jesus, for in him we have salvation. So as we get to the end of Exodus chapter one, remember that this is a story continued. It's a change of circumstances, but God is still in control. God is still at work. God is still bringing about his purposes. It's a story that reminds us that we do not have to continue in the pattern of Adam and Eve, but we, by the empowering of God's spirit, can stand against Satan and his schemes. It's a story where already we have seen a little glimpse as to how things will turn out. As God works his plans and his purposes together for the salvation of his people so that he alone will get the glory. It's a story that already points us to Jesus, isn't it? And as Caleb said earlier, boy, do we need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Exodus chapter one. How it reminds us about who you are, the God who works to save his people. Reminds us that often you work in times of trial in order to bring us to faith, yes, but also to sanctify us and to make us more and more like Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you for these examples of godly women as they stood up against this strong and powerful godless king and they refused to murder these children. Father, each of us will have times when we have to show whether we love gods in this world or whether we love you, the one true living God. Lord, might it be that we would show that our greatest love is for you, the one true living God, and might our love for you lead us to live godly lives. Lord, we pray that
we would indeed be salt and light wherever you lead us, whether it's in the home, whether it's in the workplace, in the communities that we live in. Lord, show us how we might live godly lives in this week that goes before us. But thank you most of all that Exodus chapter 1 points us to Jesus. It foreshadows the great rescuer who's to come. And so, Lord, we pray that each of us tonight would be putting our trust in Jesus for our salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.